Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. If you're sick and tired of cancel culture and censorship on social media, please feel welcome to join me and thousands of red-pilled folk at my own independent alternative, truth.network. That's http colon slash slash t-r-o-o-t-h dot network. See you there. All right, welcome to this episode of Truthiverse. This week I'm joined by Mike Donio, who is a former senior scientist at a small biotech lab or company, and he was terminated for refusing to comply with his uh, company's convax mandates. <laughs> and that was uh, that was the end of that job. But uh, Mike has a background that I'll let him share because we're going to have a, a conversation about how he got into this strange discussion about viruses or you know non-existent viruses. In particular, he's got some experience in the realm of HIV, which I really want to dig into here. So Mike, without further ado, thank you for taking time to join me and um, maybe you could give people a little bit of your you know background and shtick how we got here and you know how you got here and what your experience has been yeah yeah no first thank you so much for having me on Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak out and share my story so you know I went into science you know well I thought for all the right reasons and you know with a solid curiosity about science and a lot of naivete thinking that I could actually do some good not realizing exactly what went on in science and in industry in particular. And so I graduated with a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and and molecular biology and a minor in chemistry from the University of Massachusetts. And then I got a later, much later on, I got a master's degree in biotechnology from Johns Hopkins. And so one of my first jobs after finishing my undergrad was in the lab of uh, a top infectious disease doctor doing HIV research. And so I, I worked there for a couple of years. This was kind of an academic style lab. And then for whatever reason, it wasn't something that I intended, but I wound up jumping into industry and spent a couple of years in big pharma, kind of in a neuroscience group and did that for, oh, geez, I forget how many years. And then um, then I wound up a couple years at what's called a CRO. So a lot of companies, big, small, and in between nowadays export work to other companies that are just basically labs that run various services and things, run whatever you need. And so I did that for a couple of years, and that was doing a lot of similar things that I was doing in the, in pharma. And then um, most recently, as you mentioned, I worked for a biotech company in the oncology space, uh, developing antibodies to treat cancer. And then that led up to, let's see, about last October, when you know pretty much the whole industry was pushing out these mandates and my company joined along and I did not comply. And here I am. (laughs) (laughs) So effectively, you kind of, you know, you have been described as a sort of a whistleblower, which you kind of are. I mean, you've come from kind of the belly of the beast to come out and tell people, hey, like there's there's this essentially a deception and fraud being carried out here. 
So you had this experience of, of, you know, awakening to the HIV side of things, which is very interesting. So as you said, and I'm just looking at your email here that you sent me, you you went in with the preconceptions that they used or they studied virus, which had been isolated from primary patient samples in order to characterize it and understand its functions and evaluate the ways to therapeutically intervene. But you said, I couldn't have been more wrong. And so tell us more about that and that line of inquiry. Yeah, I mean, I went into it as a young scientist and just had whatever kind of preconceptions that came out of my studies in in school. And so, you know, again, more naivete thinking, oh, well, virology must be pretty much what they tell you in the, you know, and it was a limited studying, but, you know, I just had some idea and I go into this job and just assumed that we'd be studying virus that was derived from patient samples. And that's how you studied it and characterized it and assessed its function and evaluated any kind of therapeutic intervention. But what I quickly found out was what we were doing and what is really done in virology labs is using cell culture, cell lines to number one, derive viral stock. So so that's where you're getting kind of the source of the quote unquote virus. It's not usually from a patient sample. And then you're doing there whenever you see some effect that you've already pre kind of attributed to the virus. And so, you know, when I asked, well, why can't we use, you know, patient samples? Why can't we get virus from there? And the response was, well, there's not enough, you know, even so even when you have a what is considered to be a high level, you know, according to, you know, mainstream thought about HIV, and this is you know, they use these what are called viral load assays. So it basically it uses PCR out front. And then you run through this calculation that basically it's supposed to tell you the amount of copies of the the virus, essentially the viral genome in a given volume of, of blood. And that's cons- supposed to be the viral load. And so that's kind of how you would classify how much virus someone supposedly had. So what they said was even at what is supposed to be, you know, a high amount of virus, the viral load for HIV is actually quite low. So you can't really, there's not really enough to, to do much with. I was like, wait, okay, (laughs) that doesn't, so how's that supposed to be making you sick again? (laughs) You know, I thought these viruses, when you, when they're supposed to be doing all these, these crazy things, you would have a lot of them. You would have more than enough to be able to study, to pull it out and say, this is what the virus is. This is, you know, this is what it looks like. This is what it's made up of. This is, you know, this is the genome that's associated with it. And we know that the proteins that we believe that are part of it are encoded by that genome, et cetera, et cetera. But it all started out with that singular independent variable, the virus. Turns out, no, that's not, (laughs) that's not the case. And you're spending the majority of time just using these um, really bad cell culture models and just making a lot of assumptions and never really isolating anything. So they, they, PCR was instrumental in this. And I'm assuming at some point there was the, the cytopathic effect came into play and they were looking at this cytopathic effect going, oh, well, the cells are dying. Therefore, there must be this inv- invisible virus present, which we know is not a proof of the presence of a virus. Maybe you could talk to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, cytopathic effect is kind of a, I guess, somewhat amorphous term because it really, when it comes down to it, it, it's a sort of breakdown of the cells that's supposed to be due to the, to the virus kind of replicating and 
causing them to to die and whatnot. But it's not like there's any standard around it. You can say this is CPE, right? So it's really very subjective and kind of up to the individual scientist to say, oh, okay, I believe this is CPE. And then if you have, if you actually had the proper controls, which in most cases are not there by quite a bit, you could compare it and say, okay, yeah, this is, this is clearly this and this, but it's always basically defined by what a given scientist is calling it because you're, you know, it's subjective. You're looking at these cells under a microscope and you're kind of comparing them to what healthy cells look like. And then if you have all the proper controls and everything, then you could in theory say, okay, well, we're seeing this effect and it's just occurring in cells that are treated with what we're calling a virus. And therefore it's, it's due to the virus. But in most cases, you don't actually have the proper controls to really rule everything out that could cause that. And at different times in my career, I've, I mean, I've done a lot of things playing around with different, with cells. And I can absolutely say that these things are overall pretty sensitive to changes in conditions. So if you manipulate certain conditions, if you lower certain nutrients, you can easily get the cells to start dying and they look pretty much indistinguishable from what most would call CPE, you know? And I mean, there's different cell lines that are used for different viruses and different, you know, cell culture media formulations and things. And so it's not like it's the same for every single virus. And that's why it's even more subjective because it's somewhat different. And then you have other problems where some viruses are extremely hard to culture, like the hepatitis viruses. Hepatitis C is very hard to culture. And so that creates more questions, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those weird things that you you hear a lot with respect to isolation, because in virology, isolation is, well, we got to culture the virus because the virus is, it can't replicate or do, you know, it's basically an, an inert particle that relies on cells. It's an, it's an intracellular, you know, I can't think of the, the term, but it, but it relies on the cells yeah. to replicate. So therefore we have to put it on the cells and culture it to isolate it, which is absurd because, I mean, that is really just evaluating function. You should be able to isolate it to, to characterize it without having to culture it. And yet it doesn't seem to be done anywhere. Not yeah, Not, not that I have come across there was i remember famously quite famously anyway dr carrie mullis was in in hot pursuit of a paper just who was trying to track down just one paper that demonstrated that this thing had been isolated and characterized and shown to actually exist and he even went so far as personally accosting um the the nobel prize winner Luke, who yeah I'm blanking on his name now what's his name luke montagnier thank you montagnier. recently and, passed away yeah Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he, he asked Montagnier directly, as well as many other scientists, because he was trying to find one single paper mm -hmm. that proved the existence of an HIV virus, and Montagnier just walked away. He couldn't ask, actually provide any information whatsoever. So Mullis was quite vocal about this. You're probably very aware of that, that he, he really was not impressed at all with this, this HIV <laughs> mythology. <laughs> no, no. He, yeah, he questioned it quite a bit because... I mean, number one, he never intended, and he was quite vocal about this, that, that this PCR assay that he developed was to be used as a diagnostic. It's a manufacturing technique that allows you to amplify a rare species of a nucleic acid that's, that's perhaps present in a very low copy number. So a very, very small amount in a sample that you can amplify it so that you can study it was never meant to be to diagnose anything as a diagnostic tool. So, and he was clear about that. And 
I mean, yeah, the whole thing, like, it's so true, this idea of, you know, in every paper, I mean, and you can see this, I've kind of had some fun going through SARS-CoV-2 papers, because you can, you see the same kind of thing where, you know, that singular line where you're supposed to have something that's to the effect of SARS-CoV-2 is the causative agent for COVID-19 or HIV is the causative agent for AIDS. You would have to have some sort of a citation that backs that up, right? And that, that really is in many cases, the whole paper, because if that's not true, then everything else that comes after that is, you know, at least very much in question. So, I mean, I've looked at some of these SARS-CoV-2 papers and you can do the same thing for any, you know, pull any virology paper and, um, you know, you just see some really crazy things that people cite to. I mean, I can think of some that just, you know, they cited to like a CDC publication. You're like, well, that's not a peer reviewed, you know, (laughs) publication that's that you can trust with. Yeah. Let's, cite a government bureaucracy to prove to tell me that the virus exists or something, you know, or, or other things that are not even, you know, peer reviewed. I mean, it's just, you would imagine if there was true, real concrete evidence that it would be easy to find that and cite it like, like what he was saying, but clearly it's not that hard to find or that not that easy to find because you can't, you can't find a good citation on any of these papers. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not, you know, yeah, you're not the only person who's, who's found that. I know like mm-hmm. Tom Cowan, for example, has, has made the same observation. And interestingly, you know, you talk about citing, citing stuff that's not relevant or just nonsense. In Janine Roberts' book, uh, Fear of the Invisible, she was talking about the fact that the, the founding father, the godfather of the HIV myth, <laughs> who is a pathological liar, by the way, ladies and gents, mm-hmm. his papers were fraudulent as was proved by at least four different forensic teams that investigated them in detail and Mm -hmm. still decades later they are among the most highly cited papers yeah i i assume you're talking about robert gallo thank you yes yeah yeah i mean there there was a tremendous amount of controversy around him i mean and and not the least of which you know they staged this big press conference when they announced that hiv was the causative agent you know was the virus that causes aids and it was before they had even published any data that, to back that up or or isolated anything, right? So they just came, they just mysteriously came out and just announced it without anything. And then, shockingly, after that point, you couldn't investigate any other possible causative factor in AIDS. And of course, there were a lot of obvious ones, but that they shut that down pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Okay, so I'm just going back to your um, original email here because I'm quite interested in your, you know, personal kind of like journey through this terrain. Um, and you, I think you mentioned you were talking to the doctor whose lab you were working in, who was a top infectious uh, doctor who, who incidentally studied at the NIH under Fauci. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy was actually quite willing to, you know, answer your questions. And he actually did encourage you to investigate further. And even went as far as to point out some glaring, what you called glaring inconsistencies. <clears throat> with respect to how HIV and AIDS patient data was handled. Are you able to elaborate on that at all? Yeah. I mean, you can, it's not like it's a secret or anything. You can go into, I mean, probably is similar now, but I mean, certainly in the earlier papers where they provided kind of demographic data or population data around HIV, they grouped it in such a way that was clearly misleading, you know, because they were trying to push this whole narrative that it was going to blow up into this mass of, you know, pandemic effectively in and in spread into heterosexual populations, even though it was very clearly in 
homosexual populations and IV drug users. But what they did is they parsed those two apart. So it looked like you had multiple populations that it was really affecting when in reality, it was really overwhelmingly a single population. And, you know, it, it was it was clearly it was obvious enough to a lot of doctors that were that were treating patients. But, you know, they they were trying to sell this idea that this, you know, this was a new disease, new virus, viral disease that was set to blow up and could affect anybody, probably because they're, you know, they're trying to sell these drugs that really in themselves cause the symptoms of AIDS anyway. But, but, and, you know, fortunately, because none of this stuff really exists, that it never amounted to anything, but they certainly tried to sell it with spinning the data. I mean, and you see the same thing with SARS-CoV-2 and, you know, pretty much any of these supposed viral epidemics. I mean, data is heavily manipulated in science and it's it's unfortunate, but it's true. Well, at what point in your uh, journey in the world, the realm of science, did you start to realize the level of manipulation that was going on? Well, I mean, obviously with the virus stuff, I started questioning that right away. And so that was, you know, about 20 years ago. And when I started to come up with these things, you know, like with the not having enough virus in the primary patient sample and stuff to study it and things like that. I, I just started doing searches myself and saying, okay, well, what, this doesn't make sense. What's going on here? And I came across people that were in groups that were questioning the HIV AIDS narrative, you know, like the uh, Peter Duesberg and the Perth group and, and others. And so, you know, just from there, I mean, I, that's kind of, I've always questioned things from that point and throughout my career didn't know, obviously, at that point, what went on in, in industry. But as I got more immersed there, you know, then I just continued to ask questions and things continued to not add up. And, and here and again, here I am. <laughs> so you found the Perth group. The Perth group have been doing great work for quite a long time now. They, uh, mm-hmm. they've, been, they've been onto it for a while. Have you actually had direct contact with them or are you just sort of uh, going through some of their research? No, I wish. No, it, it, it's just going through their research. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, David Crow actually I had David Crow on. He was my first interview, and he was one mm-hmm. of the the other like very prominent people who was crit- critical of the HIV AIDS theory. And um, you know, unfortunately, we lost him a few months after that interview, which sucks yeah. for many many reasons. And I, you know, I really wanted to have him back on the show to get further into his knowledge base. Uh, and we seem to have lost a few great sort of HIV activists, like Carrie Mullis went conveniently just before the scamdemic kicked off. <laughs> uh, and then um, you had his colleague, uh, what was his name, Etienne Dar- Darvin. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he died uh, not long ago. And then David Crow back uh, in mm-hmm. last year, uh, I think. And uh, it's just been it's just been woeful for for the for the so-called you know the good guys who are trying to raise awareness. And meanwhile, <laughs> the guys who are doing this and doing this uh, perpetrating this fraud just seem to be enjoying reasonably robust health. Funnily enough, which is quite an amazing thing to <laughs> to ponder. Well, yeah. I mean, well, they're not subjecting themselves to any of the things that they're forcing on us. So, I mean, of course, you'd you'd be in good health if you were. But, I mean, one of the weird things is it seemed like there was a lot, a huge amount of people that were willing to stick their necks out and question the HIV AIDS hypothesis. I mean, there was a big group that that signed on and, you know, that were really questioning that. And I don't know, I'm, I'm wondering where a lot of those people are now. I mean, I know obviously we've lost some of them, but I mean, I feel like there's not not as many that are willing to to question this time around, even though it's pretty much a, you know, very similar uh, 
script, if you will, that's played out. Yeah, yeah. Even some of the same characters, like Fauci, still still well, going. You know. Yeah. Um, he was instrumental in the HIV fraud. Yeah, Mr. AZT himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the amount of blood on that guy's hands is absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, where can we where can we take this from here? I mean, what are, what are the thoughts that are coming up for you around the theme of HIV? Before, I mean, COVID obviously ties in. There's very similar themes, but yeah, I mean, where 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 would you like to go with the uh, the HIV conversation, if if anywhere? I don't know. I mean, it's um, it's always been one of these things that, you know, I guess another thing I can bring up about about HIV that just always kind of bugged me. And it's something that you see with other viruses as well. And it's an important part of Koch's postulates because you're supposed to be able to recreate the virus when you test it in an in, in animal or not the virus, but the, the disease effectively. Yeah. And then be able to, you know, if you pass the... Um, the virus to another animal, you'd see the same thing, etc. Well, a lot of these viruses, you know, you don't see that's not what happens at all. I mean, and in a lot of cases, that's maybe not that surprising, because if you look at how they're administering these things to the animals, I mean, you know, in some case, like the old, like polio papers and measles and stuff, where they're drilling holes in the monkey's brains and dumping junk in there, or, you know, injecting it in random places. And I mean, so, you know, maybe it's not surprising that it wouldn't be the same way. But I mean, with HIV in particular, it's kind of an interesting story because if you you can't use HIV in animal models, it doesn't do anything. So you have to use basically not just animal specific. So not just like a monkey specific virus or a mouse specific virus, but even like species specific. So I was doing this study on rhesus macaque monkeys, and we had to literally have a virus that was specific for those monkeys, not a chimpanzee-specific uh, uh, monkey virus. So simian, you use what's called SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus is what they call it. So you, you have to use this very specific virus, quote unquote. And then when you when you administer it to the to the animals what happens is nothing like what you know is supposed to be happening in the humans it's a really acute onset of very severe symptoms and they and they pretty rapidly degrade in terms of their health and so you know with hiv you're told that when you are first infected you kind of can can sometimes have like mild flu-like symptoms surprise you know <laughs> and then you go through this long period of time where you basically have nothing. And that's where, you know, what the, they, the story that they've cooked up to explain that is that, well, the virus is, you know, slowly replicating and destroying your CD4, CD4 T cells little by little. And then eventually when they get below this key threshold that they've defined, then you're considered to be immunodeficient and have AIDS and you're susceptible to all these crazy things that they've defined as AIDS. But you have this, this big time period of, I mean, before they had all of these drugs or people awakening to the ruse and just saying, well, maybe I'll just get healthier and then I won't. But, you know, it used to be that it would be like 10 years or something period between when you were supposedly infected and when you could theoretically develop the symptoms of AIDS. But with these monkeys, I mean, obviously you're not watching them over 10 years, but I mean, this is really fast and really significant. And it's more like they're just being poisoned than anything else. And so I, you know, it's kind of like, how do you possibly get anything out of a study like that when the virus is the supposed virus that you're studying on these animals is not at all replicating 
the disease that you're trying to model it after to be able to study it and evaluate, you know, drugs or vaccines or whatever you're trying to look at. I mean, and so that's a big problem too. Yeah. And can I just maybe, I don't know if this is, uh, well, I'll just ask anyway, like <laughs> I'd like to um, maybe characterize, you know, when you talk about the, the you know, the quote virus that is being administered to the monkeys. Can you kind of characterize, you know, what that is, how, what it's composed of, you know, the different f- fluids of sera or whatever that you're injecting mm-hmm. into these poor creatures? Yeah. So just like when I was talking about how in the lab, when we were, you know, studying HIV, you're making these, these viral stocks and these cell lines. It's, it's the same idea where you basically design a DNA construct that you believe encodes the genome for this virus. And you put it into the cells and the cells have all the, you know, kind of standard cell culture media and supplements. And then you culture it for, you know, generally about 48 hours. Sometimes it's a little bit different, but, and then you can take the, the supernatant, which is basically just the media on the cells. And that's your viral stock. I mean, sometimes you'll filter it to get out gross particulates. So like if, you know, if there's pieces of cells or whatever, you know, but you're not, you're not isolating anything out or anything. You're just taking that stuff and that's what's considered your, your viral stock. And then that's, um, then of course they take that and they put it on other kinds of cells that they call susceptible. And they run these assays that, that they believe are indicative of viral replication and the CPE thing and other ways that they can try to measure, um, the, what do they call it? Like the pot, like the, I guess the concentration of the stock or something, or the potency of it. There's different things that they do to, where they s- claim that it tells you something about like the, um, the, the amount of virus that's in there or how infectious it is. And then they use that to dilute it out and then inject that in, into the monkeys. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you, when you describe it like that, I mean, it's, I would I would consider that to be poisoning the the monkeys. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean it, it's hard not to see that, I think. <laughs> um well I mean on that on the subject of these, you know, cell cultures and what have you, um are you familiar with the recent or relatively recent work of um Dr. Lanka? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, around the cytopathic effect? Mhm. Yeah. What were your thoughts around that when you saw that? Yeah, I th- I thought it was a pretty good experiment and and it didn't surprise me because, you know, like I was saying, you can absolutely manipulate conditions, cell growth conditions in such a way and get these eff- and get these effects and I've and I've seen the same thing before. And so one of the things, I mean it's not that the same thing is done, you know, some people kind of conflate this and think that the same exact things are done with every single virus and and that's not the case, but if you look at the a lot of the SARS-CoV-2 papers, for example, what you see is for some reason, they are, you always have to culture cells in a certain amount of, um, so this stuff, fetal bovine serum. So it's serum from a fetal cow and it provides a lot of growth factors and things for cell lines. It's a pretty standard thing that's used and you have to, you have to use it at a certain percentage. It's pretty standard for the cells to grow and be happy but it's one of these things where if you start to lower that down substantially you will you will see market effects i mean you will induce a certain kind of program cell death and the cells will break apart and it will look like cpe and that was one of the things that he did he did this where he dropped this fbs from 
I think it started at 10%. And I don't know if it went down to 5% or 2% or something like that. And, you know, that's starving the cells effectively. And of course, you know, they culture these things for 48 to 72 hours or sometimes longer. So that's two to three days. And, you know, if, if you drop that, those key nutrients down for, for that period of time, you're, you're going to have the cells starting to die. I mean, I've done that, like I said, intentionally and unintentionally multiple times in some of these same cell lines. And, you know, after 24 hours, sometimes they start to look pretty bad, but certainly by 48 or 72 hours, I mean, yeah, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between CPE and me just starving some cells. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, which was exactly what his point was. Um, And is that when you were doing it, um, was that also simultaneously introducing in the antibiotics or even without the antibiotics, you were able to get the sort of CPE type effect? This would, this would have just been with like the standard. And so you don't have to always, I've not, not everybody uses antibiotics when they cult, when they just routinely culture cells, you don't technically have to, but a lot of people do. And there's, but it's usually kind of minimal. What I, what I know a lot of these experiments, you know, especially what you see with the SARS-CoV-2 stuff, they're putting a lot of different antibiotics. And, you know, of course they claim that it's because you're taking samples like the the nasopharyngeal samples. So like up the nose or a sample of lung fluid, you know, so there's going to, there's obviously going to be a lot of other stuff in there, a lot of my, my, you know, bacteria and things. And so they're trying to make sure that they suppress the growth of that other stuff. So they're claiming they're then they're just seeing the virus. So that's why they put all these things in there. But the problem is if you don't evaluate each, you know, so perhaps each one of those components by themselves is at a concentration. If they were just administered alone, it would not induce a significant amount of detrimental effects. But if you're starting to combine all these things together, you've got to have that, you've got to control for those things to really be sure none of them are doing, you know, or causing any of those detrimental effects by themselves. And certainly then if you're combining that with also reducing something like the serum, and then if you're adding anything else in there, I mean, you've got to control for every one of those variables, because otherwise, how can you say that the CPE is caused by a virus if you haven't ruled out everything else that could potentially cause CPE? Because again, CPE is just breakdown of the cells. So anything that causes them to die or start to lose health, you know, you need to be be sure about. Yeah. Yeah. Which was exactly what his point was, the fact that they're not doing any control experiments, which yeah. is more than a small, a slight oversight, I would think. <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, most of the time you just literally see you'll have, you know, you'll have your test sample that they put the virus on and then you'll have one that's untreated, but you won't account for any of the other potential variables. Like it, as far as I'm concerned, it's not sufficient to have just have a single untreated control. Mm -hmm. The other problem is if you're taking a sample from a patient and you're then trying to, you know, you're then putting that onto cells to culture it. I mean, the control is more than just, you know, what you're putting on the cells in the media. You need it. You need the same sample from a healthy person or from a person with, you know, you know, say a, a lung disease that's not diagnosed as SARS-CoV-2 or something like that, so that you can rule out that there's not just something in those fluids or in that sample that's causing whatever you're seeing as well. Completely. Do you, have you had conversations uh, in recent times with anyone in the, in the industry who, you know, around this type of thing and, you know, challenged anybody on it to see what, what their responses are? I mean, do you, have you got much of an insight into the psychology of your 
colleagues or, or former colleagues? Well, I mean, most of them. So nobody really wants much to do with me, at least my former colleagues that I that, and contacts and stuff that, that I had previously, because, well, obviously, once they heard that, that I didn't comply, it was kind of like, well, you know, we can't help you or we can't, you know, or whatever. But, you know, and most of them, unfortunately, just kind of believed the the science <laughs> and the narrative and, you know, went along with it. It wasn't it's not to say that everybody did. I mean, there were there were one or two people. I was in a very small group, small company, so it wasn't. But it's not that every single person was not questioning at all, but not to the level that I was. And when push came to shove, even though there were some people that were like, wow, this is this is getting to be a little bit too much. They still, you know, went along with it. So this seems to be the problem, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to get scientists to to speak out or to, you know, because the threat of retribution is is real and significant. I mean, if you say something, if you don't go along with what they want, I mean, you're going to you're most likely going to lose your job and then, you know, and then not just your job, but I mean, you're going to be lucky if you get hired again anywhere in the industry. So it's effectively your career. And most people are just not willing to, you know, risk that to speak out, even though, you know, they may have significant questions. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've gathered this uh, over the years that, you know, the, the people who do come out of the woodwork are usually very reluctant or they've been, you know, pushed back into a corner and really haven't had much other alternative um, other than to do it. And I guess, you know, in your case, you you took a stand against the, the forced um, medical intervention and then as a result, you were fired. And mm. so... You know, here we are having having a free and a uncensored conversation about it. <laughs> Do you? I mean, what's your? I'm just curious uh, as to you know what your path forward uh, looks like here in terms of you know. Do you look to continue your scientific work uh, or or other? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any chance that any you know that I'd ever be allowed back into industry or you know mainstream science at this point, not that I'd want to, I mean, because I was questioning so much anyway, and really finding out a lot of, you know, that it wasn't what I thought it was to begin with. So it, you know, in a lot of ways, it was kind of liberating to be out of it. And that's why, you know, I kind of looked at it as, well, you know, I didn't ask for this, but I was already kind of questioning things. And since it's been brought on me, you know, I'm going to just do whatever I can to, you know, to kind of share the truth and, you know, keep fighting as best I can. And I think, you know, nobody obviously asked for this, what's happened in the last two years, but, you know, what we do in response when it, when it shows up at our door, so to speak, you know, I think is kind of really what ends up defining us at the end of the day. And, um, you know, so like I said, I've been trying to speak out. And shortly after I got terminated, I went and searched for other scientists because I said, well, there's got to be some other people. Maybe it's not a lot, but there's got to be some other people that are, you know, questioning things that are standing up to this. And I really couldn't find a whole lot. So I, I just said the heck with it. And I started my own group and it's called Scientists for Health Freedom. And it's grown organically into a really nice group with a lot of kind of blows me away. All the, the different people, there's doctors and scientists and other people from the healthcare industry and life science industries and in people that are doing independent research or just people that are really curious and hungry for knowledge. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing 
Um, but the main things are, again, to try to encourage more people to speak out. And so, you know, I have a lot of ideas as to how to make sure that if you want to speak out, you know, you have a voice, we have a platform for you to speak out and we can connect you with other people that are willing to let you speak out. But also, you know, since the risk of retribution is there and I know most people won't speak out without additional assistance, you know, I'd love to be able to find ways to raise and provide financial support to people that are willing to speak out too, so that it's not like you're just risking everything for for nothing. Although, you know, I guess I I, I gave up a pretty big salary. So <laughs> but I don't really care at the end of the day. It's not a, it's not about me. So but, it, you know, so anything that I can do, because I think it's really important for people to speak out. And I think a lot of people don't even realize that they might have something to add. I think a lot of people, if, especially in industry, but probably in academia too, you know, you have seen things and they might not even realize it, that that would be very important additions to, to the these kinds of discussions. And so that's kind of a big thing with that. And then I am doing some collaborations with uh, Dr. Andy Kaufman. And I am also working on launching my own project, which is called Science Defined. And the idea with that is to try to make, I mean, essentially make science more approachable and hopefully more exciting too, to anybody, regardless of what your background is, or, you know, or maybe you've not had any exposure to science or the last uh, and only bit of science you had was like your eighth grade biology class or something, you know, because they've really kind of set up this system with, you know, I think it comes down to the terminology, which gets a lot of people. And then they turn to experts and stuff. And then, you know, you're, you're selling your thinking, you're letting somebody else do your thinking for you that doesn't have your best interests. And um, all because they're kind of these, uh, you know, been appointed these gatekeepers of this knowledge. But when you get past that, you realize it's a lot more, a lot easier to understand than, than you, you think. So, you know, kind of getting, teaching the language of science so that, you know, instead of, I think a lot of people think that, you know, you have to talk down to the layman so they can understand the science. But no, I think anybody can understand it. And I think you just have to learn, learn the language, just like with law or with these other things where we've been kind of, they've developed these whole other languages to kind of keep people away, you know, from that knowledge. So, you know, that's kind of the idea is build a foundation in terminology and then bring in concepts and but to be able to get people to ultimately navigate scientific papers and other kinds of data and things like that so that you can make your own decisions. You don't have to depend on somebody else to, to tell you what to think or to tell you that you need to mask up or you need to do what, take this experimental drug because you'll have informed yourself. And there's no, perhaps nothing, no more dangerous threat to what's going on than a thinking person, right? So let's empower people to, to take that knowledge back. So that's kind of what that's all about. And yeah, that, those are some things I'm working on. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really awesome. So it was uh, science defined was that last one. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that idea a lot because that is, you know, it's been the problem for centuries really is the the hoarding of knowledge by the elite, you know, it used to be the priestly elite and they wouldn't let the the layman read the Bible, have a copy of the Bible. They would be the ones who would dispense the the eternal biblical wisdom and no one was supposed to have a copy to be able to read it and analyze it for themselves and interpret it for themselves. Um, and so, yeah, we have the exact same situation happening in science today. And I think that it's a brilliant idea to make it 
more accessible for for everybody absolutely you know because going through and trying to read you know papers that are technical papers in say virology it's a a hard slog i mean you have to learn an entirely new language in order to be able to Mm -hmm. decipher them Mm -hmm. so it's not easy and i think that's a great initiative um how, how is that sort of taking shape well i'm uh you know admittedly i'm not the most tech savvy person in the world probably like a lot of scientists but so it's it's been a little bit slow going as I'm trying to develop materials and things. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm hoping I'm really trying to get it launched soon, you know, and like I said, it's just going to be starting with terminology. So it's just going to be putting out, you know, like a new term every week and going through, you know, what does this mean, but also kind of the etymology. So the study of the history of the word and how it was derived and how it has most likely a lot of them have changed quite a bit over time, their meaning. So a lot of that stuff is really informative too, to, to get a deeper understanding of what these things mean, not just saying, oh, well, this is the word and here's the definition in a dictionary, you know. And then as you start to get more things that you can kind of assemble together into concepts, then start to do that. But, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's something that I'm learning a lot on kind of on my feet but I'm trying to push to get something going and out as quickly as I can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, don't, yeah. Don't rush it, man. Give it, uh, mm-hmm. give it the time it needs. It sounds like it's when it, when it's ready, it'll be ready and it's going to be um, a valuable, a very valuable contribution for sure. All right. I feel like um, I want to maybe just give you a chance to maybe answer a few questions or wrap, wrap a little bit about, uh, whatever is of interest to you at the moment, because I intentionally focused and wanted us to focus on the sort of HIV thing and, and then, you know, branch out. We branched out a bit into um, COVID. Um, what's what's your take on things at the moment? Yeah, well, you know, it certainly doesn't seem to be moving in a very good direction. And I don't I don't feel like there's a lot of optimism that things are going to get better anytime soon. And I think, you know, that's why, I mean, we've got to be able to start to do things for ourselves more and work together in perhaps, you know, small communities and things. And I think decentralization and, and kind of constructing parallel systems are, are going to be really important. I mean, especially with something like science, because I think there's a lot, you know, I think science is can still be very useful, maybe not in the current mainstream format, but there's a, there's a lot that can and should be done with it. But you know, it's like, how do you do that in the current system? You you really can't. I mean, there's a lot of people that talk about trying to fix things from within the system. But I mean, I would suggest that, you know, if we're not there, we're probably approaching a point where it's kind of irreparably damaged. Not that anybody's going to let you tear down the old system and just build a new one. But I think there's a lot of potential and interest to to try to come up with something new so that we can continue to ask questions and test things formally in experiments because we can we can talk about things all we want and have debates and stuff but at the end of the day i mean i think we need to be able to generate hypotheses and test with proper rigorous experiments and so i think but this is kind of the case with a lot with a lot of things you know where we've been kind of probably intentionally not taught how to do a lot of things. And, you know, now you're trying to figure out, well, if I'm going to 
unplug from this, if I'm going to try to get away from all this stuff, I've got to figure out how to grow my own food and heal myself and do all this stuff. And But if you have a good community, you know, then you can maybe find that one person that really knows something about growing food if you don't or knows something about, you know, how to build certain things or whatever, you know, and then you can work together because, yeah, I mean, I just I don't see that this is going to and I hate to say it, I'd love to be optimistic. But when you see what's been done in the name of science in the last two and a half years and then you see what's they're continuing to push these things. I mean, it's obvious that they're not giving it up anytime soon. So we need to be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's well said and realistic and pragmatic. And yeah, it, it's more or less where I'm at. Um, they're clearly not letting go of this this narrative. <laughs> <laughs> they're, well, they're now pushing the uh, that they're going to develop a super vax to deal with all the screens <laughs> at once. <laughs> yeah, I saw that the other day. I was like, okay, well... <laughs> Good well, luck I with mean, that. That, should be, that should be pretty easy for them, considering that all the strains are imaginary. So we don't really need. Right. It'll be easy to develop a solution. <laughs> I don't know. You can, you almost can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just get gets more absurd by the day. It does, and then yeah, the monkeypox thing. I mean, that's just hilarious. The, um, I just that's I so even... obvious that one. <laughs> I don't know how people are getting fooled by that. The cases are going up. We're not having enough tests. They're saying we're not. We're not having enough testing. It's literally the same, you know, language and stuff that they used when the when COVID was coming out, you know, like we're, we're not having enough testing. So they're probably higher than they are. But then but then they'll say that they're it's not like the whole the set of symptoms is not at all what monkeypox originally was supposed to be. Now it's like these completely different nondescript symptoms that probably are being stolen some of from the basket of COVID-19 and be, because they're really just symptoms of the jab. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit of shingles so, here and, and right. Yeah. It's uh it's clown world. Yeah, but I'm I'm with you and I think I like that you you touched on community and and collaboration because I think collaboration is really key now. That's how we we kind of strengthen ourselves and ensure ourselves against, you know, whatever may come around the corner. And if, you know, if, if I'm growing spinach or tomatoes, maybe down the street, Mike can be growing sweet potatoes and then the next door neighbor can be growing something else. And then one person doesn't have to do all of it. We can just do one piece of the puzzle each. And that way, you know, collaboration makes things, you know, work much lighter for everybody. And, you know, it's like you were saying, you know, if you find that one person who has the, the genius in that one area and you find the people who have that skill set, then you bring them together, you have something very powerful. And yeah, I kind of have a more pessimistic kind of view of the next few years. I think that people, you know, without being um, too sort of too dark about it, I think people should be getting themselves uh, as as self-sufficient as possible because we can see that, for example, I'm sure you've noticed that the food supply is worldwide under attack. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this agenda is clearly, we all know that it's about, you know, something bigger than the, any random disease they make up or it's, it's pushing us in a direction. I mean, what are your thoughts about the ultimate direction and the ultimate goal as far as you're aware and, and where, you know, do you think that they can execute it to, you know, what extent perhaps? Well, if people don't start really waking up to what's going on, I mean, they're just going to keep pushing it. I don't think they're going to stop anytime soon trying to push this. You know, when you look at what's going on with and what's gone on with COVID and with the the jabs and everything and the fallout, the, I mean, even what we know in the official data, it's just gut-wrenching the amount of, you know, basically carnage that we see on a daily basis uh, with people that are permanently injured or dying. And those are just, you know, it's a fraction of what the real numbers are. And it's 
I, I feel like there's anecdotal evidence that it's probably speeding up. It's that it's increasing each day. And, you know, maybe that's not entirely surprising, you know, if we were to think about what might be going on. But I mean, it just goes to show you that there's clearly an attempt to manipulate the the population and shift things around because whenever anything like that has happened where you've had a massive amount of you know adverse effects or deaths or anything with these kinds of things they've been immediately pulled and the fact that this has gone on this long and it's still being pushed and you're having more boosters and now a super one and a this and a that you know and then new uh, variants and new you know and monkeypox and we got to get monkeypox vaccines and this and that i mean it's just what what is what could possibly be the outcome other than you know you're going to see a lot of people get very sick and probably worse over the next coming months and years. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it's pretty obvious. I think that the intentionality behind it is, is on one level, a population cull, but then on the other level, the, the, the control of the, the survivors, mm-hmm. you know, the, the transhumanists, the, transhumanism the engineering of the humans so that they can be more easily controlled through you know the electromagnetic signaling of the the cell phone towers or whatever else they've got going on and it, you know that used to that kind of thinking used to sound quite outrageous but it doesn't anymore it's all it's all quite sort of in our faces at this point and i think even the most sort of skeptical people have to admit something is very radically wrong at this point right it's it's almost too obvious to not notice, but yet then they still will stand there on the news or whatever and just lie with impunity. Like, no, it was heat stroke or, you know, of course that's normal for someone that young to just die randomly in their sleep. <laughs> How do you not know that? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> Let me go look back over the last, you know, however many years and d- double check that. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's just a coincidence that we invented the sudden adult death syndrome uh, condition just, you know, just in the last few months. That's uh, right. Right. I mean, we, we meant to do it, you know, 30 years ago, but we just didn't yeah. get around to it. And now we're letting you know. We had SIDS, but, you know, that apparently didn't cover enough ground. So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, well, it's never been so obvious that adults are dropping dead for no apparent reason. So we better invent a a rationale for this. Right. Oh, man. (laughs) But I want to give you a chance to say anything else you want to say, as well as let's make sure that you uh, can let people know how to uh, keep in touch with you or keep track of uh, your various um, activities. Yeah, I mean, I guess on, on that one, I mean, I'm all over most of social media until I get start getting banned for telling too much truth. But, you know, for the most part, you can find me by my name, Mike Donio. I don't think I have any funky usernames or handles or anything like that. My, I have a, not a website, but this here still in the storm is my kind of personal Substack blog newsletter. And then I have a community on Telegram under the same name. And Telegram is also where the I started the Scientists for Health Freedom group, but it's now kind of spread out to some other platforms as well. I don't have anything officially yet for science to find, but I guess stay tuned on that. Yeah, I mean, I can be found in in a lot of different places. And still in the storm, if, if yeah. someone goes on Telegram and searches still in the storm, they'll find you. Cool. Yeah, if you just search, yeah, still, in t- yeah, if you search still, still in the storm, they would find me. Yeah, awesome. Because I know a lot of people um, have jumped onto Telegram and are keen to follow people that way. So it's uh, yeah, it's a good one, good one to mention. Um, and your Substack is by the same name. Yes. Cool. Okay. Cool. How often are you getting a chance to publish regularly, or mm, not as much as I would like? But I've tried to like I've got a couple articles that I did on there that are you know that are like more 
full articles that I've, you know, referenced and everything. And, but then there's just, uh, you know, kind of things that I've shared here and there. And so I don't know, it's, I have something that I just felt like would be interesting to just start putting down thoughts. But then as I started to work on other things and, you know, it was kind of like, well, I don't know how much I can in- invest into something like that. I need to uh, find ways to generate income that I've lost <laughs> since losing my job. So I've been kind of more focused on stuff like that, that I can. Yep. Yep. You got, uh, got to eat, right? <laughs> I got to eat. I have, I have three young kids and Wow. And my wife's been super supportive, but, you know, <laughs> we can only go for so long <laughs> with that, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodwill, goodwill and uh, good intentions that will take you so far. <laughs> so, um, yeah, make sure you follow Mike there, guys, and keep up to date with his his um, his um work. What are your parting parting shots or comments or thoughts for, for the people, Mike? I guess, let's see. Well, I really want to thank you for the opportunity to to talk, to share the truth and speak out. I mean, I think, you know, I've been blown away by the by the response and by the amount of support that I've gotten. And I I think I want to make sure that people like you that are giving people like me that are speaking out get the credit for, you know, opening your platforms and and allowing people like me to speak out. And so I gratefully appreciate that. And, you know, that's why I, I really encourage more people to to speak out, to stand up. I know that it's scary. It's, you know, there's there's a lot to potentially risk, but there's also, there's probably a lot more than you realize that you're putting at risk if you don't stand up. Um, being silent in these times is perhaps almost worse than actually standing up and speaking out because, you know, I mean, you're, you're just conceding to whatever is being brought upon you. And, you know, at the end of the day, we really do have a lot more power to to stand up to this. We really do have much more than we think. I mean, we've obviously been, you know, we've lost a lot of the know-how to do a lot of these basic things, but we really still do have a lot more knowledge and power than we realize. And I think we just, you know, it's one of these things where fear dominates everything right now. And you can't, you know, you can't live in fear, but you, you may not be able to make it go away entirely, but courage isn't the absence of fear, right? So walking boldly and courageously, like you're going to need to, if you're going to take a, a leap of faith, like I did, it is, you know, it doesn't mean that there's no fear, but it means that you're doing it in spite of the fear being there. And you're, you're doing it for kind of, you know, a higher, a higher purpose and reason. And, you know, we have to think not just about ourselves, but about future generations. Like I said, I have kids and they're a massive driving factor for me in terms of trying to make sure that I'm doing whatever I can to put them in the best possible position to have a fighting chance and their kids and their kids and so forth. I mean, I had somebody ask me whether, you know, am I expecting to see, you know, the finish line for this or see, you know, or what does this look like if I'm successful in fighting back? And I said, it, it, if I'm successful, I probably don't see the results because I'm working for change that's beyond likely the time that I will be here. Uh, And that's fine with me because we didn't get into this position just with the last couple of years. I mean, this was probably a hundred years or more of, you know, indoctrinating people and manipulating things to get us to this point where we'd accept this. So it's going to take time to affect change the other way too. So 
you know, just realize you have the power to act boldly and take a stand. I mean, if, if not now, when, right? Right, right. And I like, you know, I like you calling people out. And the reality is in times like these, if you know what's going on behind the scenes, if you know where this is going and you say nothing, you're complicit, you're enabling it. You know, like mm-hmm. silence is, is so much worse than just simply going, oh, well, I'm not, I'm just going to, you know, keep my head down. And it's really, you are really basically saying, okay, well, look, you tyrants and, and psychopaths out there, I'm going to not be, I'm not going to get in your way. I'm not going to make even the slightest ounce of inconvenience for you. I'll just keep my head down and uh, try and stay out of the way. And and the more people that do that, the more they steamroll us. Um, it's it's crucial that people who are on the inside, who have the knowledge from the inside, who have that credibility, because that's why people want to hear from someone like you, Mike, is because you've come from the belly of the beast and you're saying something is very wrong here. They are defrauding us. They are using junk science and pushing this scam on us and it's sending us into a dark age. Um, and that's when people will listen. They go, well, he's, you know, he's come from the, he's a professional. He's got the, the qualifications. He's got the PhD and all this stuff. And that's why it's so powerful to have someone like you do, do what you're doing. Um, as opposed to somebody like me who doesn't come from the, you know, have the background and who's saying essentially the same thing, except without the personal experience in the lab. And, but no one cares if they're even a little bit indoctrinated, they're not going to listen to me, but they might listen to someone like you. So I, uh, I have tremendous um, appreciation for the fact that you have taken such a ballsy and bold stance um, and, you know, refused the jab and, and, you know, have gone on this sort of down this new road. Um, God knows where it leads. And that in itself is, is a pretty amazing and ballsy thing to do. So I tip my hat to you, man, for, for making the, uh, for the effort and the taking a stand like this and giving people uh, another voice. And, um, you know, a little bit, I think it's, it's reassuring and it's, it's a little spark of hope in a, in a time where we desperately need it, you know, and just another person who's, who's got awareness and is saying, Hey, this is not right. And taking a stand and that gives more people permission to do the same thing in their own life. So it's very, 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 very valuable on multiple levels, man. And I really appreciate you taking an hour out to, to have the chat with me. So yeah, ladies and gents, Mike Donio, uh, make sure you follow him on um, Insta or, uh, sorry, not Insta. Um, are you on Insta? Mm-hmm. You're on Insta as well. He's on Instagram. I know he's on Telegram. Uh, still in the storm. Check out Mike Donio, still in the storm on multiple different platforms. His Substack as well, um, because we're all fighting the good fight and it's not an easy thing in a rigged in a rigged world. Like, you know, you've seen Mike knows from the inside how rigged it is. I mean, if you don't toe the line, you're, you're out of there. Um, and so we need to we need to back each other, guys, and we need to support each other and um, enable the you know the so-called resistance to to grow in strength and power and numbers. And the numbers are are on our side. We have numbers. We just got to get organized and kind of on the same page. And it's game over. Again, thanks, man. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. These days, positively charged toxic EMF are everywhere, but your biofield runs on a negative charge just like your body's cells, so how do you protect it? I've been using organ effects products like the GeoCleanse and Enerband for years because their technology addresses what others don't, that is, the subtle, toxic positive charge field of harmful EMF, neutralizing it. Head to brendanmurphy.global slash EMF to learn more and get yours, and enter Murphy at checkout for 10% off.